your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by James Boyman and Ryan Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined as always by Ryan for drumroll, please, our 2020-2021 Everton Squad Assessment Part 1, where we're going to be looking at uh, an overall view of some of the, the squad numbers underlying metrics that might explain some of Everton's performances this year and reflecting a little bit on some of the opportunities that await the Toffees this summer. We do, if you're listening on your regular podcast platform, we are doing video uh, for the first time for the American Toffee Pod. So do uh, feel free to check us out. Check out the YouTube link. Or if you don't want to do that, we will also have a link to the presentation that we've put together for this episode in the description. So check that out. Uh, It goes into a lot of visual representations of some of the numbers that we'll be talking about. And you may find it helpful when following along, but we will do our best to make it easy to digest as we always try to do. Yeah, we will try. Uh, We'll try and summarize things and bring you over to them and bring up our points. We have a lot of stuff to go through today, though, so the visuals probably will help a little bit. Um, And really, I think the idea behind this whole thing is to come up with an idea of of some solutions and and how we can improve upon upon squad performance and ultimately lead into a summer window episode. But that's kind of hard when you haven't named a manager yet. So uh, once we have a little better idea who we're going to name and and potential tactics, uh, we've already done a lot of that work. We'll be able to turn that around pretty quickly and we're excited to bring that to you. But first, let's get into the year performance. What went right? What went wrong? And uh, we've got a an agenda to kind of walk through and we're going to try and do this in as logical a method as possible Hamas. yes indeed so let's uh let's get right into it we'll share share my screen here and we'll start with just a, a i guess call back to our start of the year squad assessment video where we talked about what the uh toffees lacked uh the previous year and then looked at what some of the newcomers may have brought in and talk about the objectives that we had set for the squad best case scenario and uh, see how we, we stacked up against that. And then we'll move into a uh, holistic uh, examination of our offense and attack, which will include finishing, passing, ball progression, both passing and carries. How well did the Toffees move the ball forward, as well as goals and chance creation? Yep. And then we're going to move into the defense a little bit. Uh, talk more about style probably than other things. Uh, I, I think we saw a noted difference in that this year at times. And I think that was important. Uh, talk about definitely improved goalkeeper performance and then get into some of the individual actions and and see kind of how some of our newcomers as well were expected to perform and maybe didn't quite live up to expectations and why. Um, but I think first, without further ado, let's get into kind of the preseason objectives because we went through in, in great detail to set up our summer preview episode where we talked about where we thought Everton might need to look and kind of took our best guesstimate uh, in terms of goals for goals against Um, if we wanted to achieve what we thought a realistic objective was. But the bottom line is it kind of starts with where we were. And I think our 1920 performance was not the greatest. No, indeed, it was not. Uh, If you look back at those numbers, Everton scored 44 goals while conceding 56 and uh, expected goals slightly above at 49.3, expected goals against slightly lower at 48.4. So the Toffees managed to both uh, underperform on the offensive end and underperform on the defensive end. And we got into a lot of the reasons for that. I mean, 
A lot of it was finishing. We had goalkeeping issues last year, of course. But the logic behind it was that, look, uh, we thought the highest reasonable expectation we thought this team could have. And again, we, you know, we knew who we were going to sign or we didn't know who we were going to sign at the time, but we we're looking at realistic targets because, look, we're in year three of a massive rebuild coming out of 1718 last year. And we thought, okay, scientifically speaking, okay, it's not maybe super scientific, but um, the last five years, you know, what was about the sixth highest total in goals for and sixth high, highest total goals against? And we kind of looked it down and we came up with 62.2 and 42.2 respectively. And so, look, we had a big hill to climb to achieve those things, but I think the logic behind it was, look, if we could, through a great summer window, kind of jump up and make those kind of quantum leaps into those numbers or at least close to them we'd be in pretty good shape going into going in for europe not that we expected that i think we both kind of came to the assumption that hey look you know we probably won't quite get the amount of points required to get six and i think we had that around 62 points too is has been kind of the average to get sixth we thought that might be pretty hard to get to and sure enough that's pretty much where we ended up now how we got there though was kind of interesting, but uh, let's kind of go back and look then at the performance this past year in terms of goals for goals against, and especially compared to expected goals, which um, most of, you know, we get into the metrics a lot. They are overly advanced, but I think it does tell an interesting story of the past year because it appears to be an improvement, but on second review, looking at some of the advanced metrics, I'm not so sure. Yeah, it's interesting. So this is kind of like the key performance indicator dashboard where we break down. Look, obviously we got 20% more points. We got 10 more points than we did the previous year. Yeah. We moved up two positions in the table. So, you know, I mean, that's an improvement if, if not a massive one. Um, but you look at the other numbers, the more advanced metrics and look, we got worse in XG and we got worse in XG against, and also got significantly worse in our rank amongst the other Premier League teams in those areas. And I think that the XG rank really sticks out, but um, there, there were definitely some improvements, Ryan, and I think we've been pretty um, pretty clear that we felt that Carlo did improve the squad, maybe not as much as we'd have hoped or as much as might have been necessary, but there were some positive potential signs, at least in the high-level numbers. Yeah, there were, and I, I think it kind of tells a story as we go. We'll get into that in a second. I, 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 when we get into the attack, I think the attacking numbers are more concerning than the defensive ones. Um, and as we decompose those, I, I, I think that's very evident. But I think what's very interesting is the difference between the actual goal differential and the expected goal differential kind of played out in real time during the season. And it um, may have altered people's expectations really of the season in a way that, I don't know if I'd call it detrimental or not, but when you kind of look at it, so we've got this chart here where we kind of walk through the cumulative goal differential versus expected goal differential by match week. And it's very interesting because at the beginning of the season, uh, our actual goal differential was a little bit better than expected goals. And that would be an indication that maybe we're getting a little bit fortunate, but you know, it's only a couple of weeks in, we're looking at kind of small sample sizes, but the bottom line is we still look great. I mean, even either of those had hopped up into four or five weeks and we were, we we're way up there. You know what I mean? We're looking at goal differential big. We're scoring a lot. And then uh, we, we pointed out a couple very important phases, we think, in the season. The Southampton loss, I think, was one that we were both a little surprised about. I mean, we did a, we did a match preview, and uh, we just did not look very well equipped. I don't know if people had kind of found out the cutting inside James thing on the right wing. Uh, we were missing some people, obviously, in that match. You know, we were missing Richarlison after the Liverpool match. Um, 
But that's when you can see it just both of them starting to go down. But they weren't diverging necessarily yet, were they, Hamas? No, right. And I think that's interesting. Like we maybe weren't as playing, we weren't playing as well, but we were still getting the results that maybe were expected based on how we were playing at the time. And that Southampton loss, as you said, Ryan, was a weird one because I think we correctly predict or assessed what would have been necessary for the Toffees to win that game. And we basically let Southampton kind of run all over us and play exactly how they wanted to play. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, yeah, that, that, no question. And, and, you know, one thing to mention too, is I don't want to go overboard on, I mean, this is one season singular games. I mean, it's kind of a small sample size. It's hard to compare and use XG on a game by game basis. So I, I don't want to oversell what the story is here. But you're right, we started performing badly, but you didn't see this grand divergence necessarily of what's actually happening versus, you know, what the results were. I mean, look, you either believe the table lies or it doesn't, but I think this tells us pretty clear story that it might lie a little bit. And we'll get into the reasons behind that. But yes, once we started to get to that Sheffield win, which I think in many ways was undeserved, we're sitting at second in the table in Boxing Day. And the narrative has been, well, how could we have been so good in second so late in the season yet fall apart. I mean, this chart tells a little bit different story, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you see the the gap between the two lines grow and uh, essentially means that our, our actual goal difference, what the table actually showed, was pretty f- uh, favorable for us. And we really yeah. weren't maybe creating as much of a differential that, uh, that you might have thought. And it continues. You see that huge divergence carry on throughout most of the rest of the season and that Sheffield win on boxing day uh, was a kind of where it peaked and then sort of plateaued almost and and stayed that way consistently through the remainder of the year. Yeah, that's correct. And then you could see us kind of ebbing and flowing. So we got some benefits up front. I mean, for sure that you can see them diverge in theory. That's what the chart says. Um, But what I think was most interesting is, you know, then we kind of leveled out and we were still somewhat getting some benefit. I mean, the spread between those two lines, isn't that massive. But what I thought was very interesting is still, you know, we came off an international break and I think most of us were a little bit distraught. We weren't playing very well, uh, even though our goal differential still looked good. I mean, the, the overall trend was somewhat down and we were going into that palace match. And I was concerned because I, I, we saw some setup issues. We didn't see a lot of design kind of passing sequences. We didn't see a lot of intent in attack and it was concerning. And I had concerns with the personnel decisions too. We'll get into those in a little bit, but I must say we came out and played a pretty darn good game against Palace. We just couldn't finish. And it's funny, you look at the, ex, the, the expected goal differential and you see a little bit of a blip there. And that's actually a pretty significant blip if you think about it. Trying to converge those lines, but it wasn't a favorable one for us in the actual results. And then we had that crazy Brighton match where we just had everyone injured. Same right. thing, we played Spurs really, really well. I mean, that was a game we truly probably deserved to win, but we made a terrible mistake early. And again, another blip up. So now you see the convergence of the line. And look, in, in long term, if we were to play thousands of seasons, um, what these numbers would tell you in theory that those lines would converge. They'd be in the same place. Um, but that's just goes to show you when those lines start to get closer together, we were getting you know, more bad luck really uh, at that time because the differential was already giving us benefit to begin with. Uh, but that's kind of the story of the season, really. And then you see that terrible blip at the end, by the way. Yeah. I think we all want to forget that one. But that's kind of the story. So so I think, I think the summary of the slide, really, to me, what this saying is that, look, I know a lot of people got excited. But, you know, what we saw, the underlying issues be, behind the squad that we're going to get into in more detail, 
maybe we should not have been more optimistic. I wasn't. I mean, you know how I am. You know, I'm very, very trying to be very analytical. But I think the signs were there. So I think a lot of people maybe just got carried away. And it's unfortunate because I think a 59-point haul is a good haul especially compared to last year. That's not that far off where we need to be. Uh, even if the underlying metrics maybe aren't as good as the 59 points would indicate. But, but look, we weren't this amazing juggernaut early necessarily. We, we really weren't. I mean, look at it. We hovered in around zero, you know, expected goal differential and then far below for most of the season. It kind of evened itself out. And, and I think that's the lesson here. You know what I mean? Um, you know, points and the table can lie or distort a little bit you can get some luck and some unluck and things like that but ultimately we shouldn't have changed our expectations i don't think they changed throughout the year and to get your hopes up maybe what you're watching is hope rather than you know empirical data that would really indicate your performance was maybe not as good as you think and again that's very scientific i know it doesn't mean i lack hopes and dreams or watch the match get out of your spreadsheet but i thought it was an interesting way to tell the story this season no, I, I think it is a really interesting representation just in reflects sort of our observations throughout the campaign. Yeah. That said, I was absolutely one of the spirit of the blues. Here we go. <laughs> it, it was fun. I mean, it was fun for a while, man. It doesn't mean you can't get your hopes up and things, things could happen. Those yeah. lines could diverge throughout an entire season and have happened many times. I mean, heck, we got in the Champions League with 61 points, right? And I mean, I can assure you those lines are not pretty. Um, right. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into the attack too, because I think this is the area we're going to spend most of our time in too, because I, there are definitely some concerns here, at least in my opinion. Yeah, so let's let's get into it, Ryan, without further ado. Uh, so we look at, obviously, a callback to the, <clears throat> excuse me, 2019-2020 season, XG of 49.8, scored 44 goals this season, an XG of 47, so... 2.8 less and three more goals. Uh, and you can see the ranks in parentheses there. Not great offensive numbers, Ryan. And the 27 goals from open play ranking 12th in the league, we've known that we haven't really been able to score from open play and have been a little over-reliant on set pieces as well. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we took, we were only 16th in corners taken, which we're going to get into like some of the lack of possession in dangerous areas. Not surprising that number so bad but we still scored 10 corners. So we were first in the league from that. And now maybe that was part of it was personnel, you know, playing Arian and Michael Keane, who scored a lot of goals at their head and whatnot. Um, I think what's also telling is it's no surprise to anyone else. I mean, we were incredibly efficient with the opportunities we had. And many times we also passed up shots to try and go for kind of that perfect shot. We did score a lot of goals uh, very close to, you know, within the penalty area, within the box. And so it should be no surprise that, you know, our XG per shot was so, so high. Right. And then the, the, the 14 headed goals as well, right. Uh, between the aerial weapons that we have unsurprising first tied for first tied for first with West Ham in both categories, which is uh, interesting. <clears throat> They're also a team that relied heavily on set pieces. So. Yeah, they absolutely did. And, and it, it be, you know, it led to a lot of success for them, but uh, let's kind of get into the numbers too, and figure out what kind of really went wrong and why those numbers weren't so hot from a goal output standpoint. Um, the first very obvious area to focus is finishing. Uh, and ultimately we were a lot better at finishing this year than we were last year, but frankly, we couldn't have been much worse last year. Uh, however, there is one glaring issue and let's be honest, Richarlison's finishing this year was just not there. And, and I think there may be a lot of reasons why. And sometimes this is just luck. I mean, it's amazing. Even the best guys really very rarely outperform their expected goal, but that's what this metric says. So if we look at it, it's comparing the, the non-penalty goals to the expected goals. And really, um, 
you know, we, we came pretty close, but we scored fewer goals than we were expected to because our finishing was a little bit off but last year i mean the differential was 7.5 goals that is a ton this year it's only 2.3 but it's still 13th in the league so our finishing objectively was not great however so much of it was with trollison i mean if the whole team's differential is negative 2.3 he's negative 4.7 so the rest of the team Seamus was the only one that really had a bad number the whole rest of the team finished incredibly well but I mean, that is a massive drop. I mean, Richarlison was like a plus four the last two years. In fact, I think I had it out where if Richarlison had finished the way he had the last two seasons, considering the chances he got this year, because I feel like he got more chances this year, statistically speaking, um, than he ever has in an Everton jersey, he would have had 15 goals, which would have been the most he had. Um, Now, is that realistic? Are you going to finish the way you did the last two years? No, probably not. But man, you got to hope he bounces back. What do you think it is? I mean, was he fatigued? I mean, he looked pretty lively against, you know, in his Brazil match the other day. Did we use him in the wrong way? What are your thoughts on this, Thomas? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's no secret. I think everyone's kind of been a little frustrated with Richarlison, someone who we've relied so heavily on the last couple of years. And I think it's just, as you said, Ryan, a regression to the mean or, you know, a fluctuation in data points. I think over time, if you know, if he stays at Everton for another couple of years or even another season, it would be unlikely for him to have as poor finishing as he did. But I also don't think he necessarily benefited from playing at striker quite as much as he did in the latter stages, I think. And we'll get into that also with like his ability to, to dribble with the ball at his feet. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think that sort of indicates that, yeah, I mean, he can play striker when needed. He's, he's good with both feet and his head, but um just something about the chances he was getting this year and it was just not coming off for him. And maybe it's just a mental thing. Maybe he would just let himself get, get frustrated. But of course we saw him score recently for Brazil and um, hopefully he can shake it off and come back. And he's, as you said, it's, it'd be rare for him to outperform by four just as much as yeah. it would be rare for him to underperform. So you would see something closer to what's expected of him. In fact, it's very interesting. It, it compares very similar to his last year at Watford, where everyone kept pointing out, oh, he can't score anymore. And remember, you know, Paul Merson declared that he ruined the transfer window. That was that was a great observation, buddy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> blew that one. Uh, but it was very similar. And people said, look, he hadn't stopped playing for a long, long time. And maybe Carlo needed to give him a rest. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we acquired a striker in the January window. It didn't play a whole lot. Maybe that would have helped him. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of, of mental fatigue as well. I mean, it was a very difficult schedule and near the end, it had to be frustrating. Just watching the palace and Spurs matches had to be very difficult. You could tell he was, he wanted to score and he gets excited when he did. And, and maybe it was the crowds too. I think that's a really good point that people made how energy energized he was when he scored with the crowd there. Um, You know, the other thing I want to mention is I can't imagine James is going to finish better than that again. I mean, it was unbelievable considering how few, in the minutes he played to be plus 2.7 is insane. Um, but kudos to Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I mean, that's one thing I wanted to mention. I mean, he was second in the league and non-penalty goals scored and didn't play the minutes the other guys did. Harry Kane was the only one that went above him. And in fact, of the top 14 players in non-penalty expected goals, I mean, only two guys finished better if you look at the actual goal output compared to his expected goals. I mean, that is a good finishing season. So let me tell you what, all this tapping merchant garbage that I keep hearing about this guy, this guy scored at an elite level last year. That's second in the league, man, behind Harry Kane. 
And let me tell you another thing too. Harry Kane scored 28 goals. I think it was from open play a couple of years ago. Guess how he did that? Is it because he finished amazingly well? No. I mean, he finished well because his XG was that high too. So I think the team can only be benefited by creating more opportunities for Dominic Calvert-Lewin and giving more touches in dangerous areas. Does he have things that he can improve on? Of course. But as a young striker, this has been an important year for him. And he wasn't elected player of the year by the fans as well as the players for a reason other than he didn't perform at a very high level. So when you hear people get this narrative that he can't finish, that's ridiculous. And guess what? I don't care if he doesn't score outside the box. You know what? There's no three-point line in the English Premier League last time Amen. I checked. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Ruud van Nistelrooy never scored outside the box. Maybe once in his entire career in the Premier League. Is anyone telling me that he was a bad striker? No. And that's my rant on the day in Dominic Calvert-Lewin. But objectively speaking, he finished well. And that's those are just the facts. Only the facts here on the American Toffee Podcast. We might throw in an opinion here and there. But yeah, let's, you know. let's take a look at our uh, possession stats, Ryan. Our ability, our, where we got our touches and what we were able to do with them. Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, that's, the, you know, for those who can't see the screen, I mean, the touches were about the same year over year. I mean, it's amazing how much different the numbers looked across the league. I mean, you add leads into the league. I guess that's what happened. <laughs> but um, we just had more touches, but we're still only 13th in the league in touches. So that's not great. Um, however, uh, what was disturbing is the amazing drop in touches in the attacking third and the penalty area. I mean, we went from 11th to 17th and 9th to 18th in both those categories conversely we had way more touches in our own defensive third from ninth to third we had the third most touches in the defensive third so that doesn't necessarily mean it's the worst thing in the world if you're incredibly efficient but it's hard to objectively look at those numbers and say man we don't need to get more touches in dangerous areas but ironically in some of the matches where we did get touches in dangerous areas we didn't do very well. So it's more than that. It's not, yes, we need more volume in there, but clearly we need more quality. And I think as we dig deeper into the numbers, it's pretty obvious, but there are some shocking numbers in terms of our performance in the matches where we did get touches in dangerous areas. Yeah, look, I mean, it's right on the side here, but we had 11 matches with more than 20 touches inside the penalty area, but and you think, okay, you're getting a lot of touches in the box. Yeah, we're good. We're going to score. Wrong. We had two wins, three draws, six losses in those matches. Uh, so even when we were able to get forward, it just shows that we were still unable to break any defense down. Yeah, and it's the same thing with the 10 matches where we had more than 144 touches in the final third. I mean, those were our top ones. We lost six out of those seven matches, of the top seven matches. We only won one in 10. I mean, that that speaks to a serious problem. Teams pack it in against us, and we really have trouble breaking them down. And there, there are a lot of reasons behind that that we'll get into, we think. And, and some of the creation, especially the progression aspects of it, we took a big hit this year, and we got to solve those problems. Uh, I think the other big problem is the total disparity of touches. I mean, really, the only guys that touch the ball with any high level of volume in the penalty area were Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison. And I know those guys can score, but... Um, you know, you've got to have some different elements of attack. Number one, it's too predictable, but number two, I mean, you can't be solely reliant on guys like that because guess what happens when you have one guy that has a down year finishing. Exactly. Exactly. And when 44, almost 45% of your touches in the penalty area come from two guys, it's not good. You got to have a little bit more. Um, you got to spread the wealth a little bit. And, and unfortunately we just didn't have, we, we know our midfield guys were, were, uh, not getting involved, it, providing that link up from the defense to the attack. And so this just demonstrates to me that 
our attackers, DCL and Richarlison, were super, super isolated for much of their time on the pitch. Yeah, and I think you got to ask the question, how the heck is that possible? Is it an issue with we weren't possessing the ball long enough to get those titches, touches in area? Um, I don't think that's quite it. So kind of, you know, let's take another look. I think the next uh, the next slide we're going to look at is kind of the passing in general. And, and we talk about possession-based passing, really. So if you look at it, I mean, it doesn't look that awful, right? I mean, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, we were only 13th in pass attempts, but you know, our passing rate was good. And that's really kind of passes per minute when you have possession, we're ninth. So, okay, there's some tempo in there. Our completion percentage went up from 77 to, to 80.4. That's good, right? That's not bad. I mean, it's 10th in the league, could be worse. Um, but then you also look and say, wow, you mean we had fewer passes under pressure this year, even though we had more possession? That's a little bit stranger, or at least we passed it better. Well, that's why you start to think, and you're like, oh, maybe this is a byproduct of us playing too safely. And I think that's what it is. Cause when you really start to unravel it, you see a lot more short, medium passes than we had. Right. I mean, so I think let's take a look at the progression and passing because I mean, you have guys like Tom Davies, whose possession numbers, his pass completion percentage was higher. And so was Decore's was like a career high, but it looks like that may have come at a cost. Yeah. I mean, just, just looking at the, you know, yeah. Okay. So we, we had a higher completion percentage, but when you look at where the passes were not good areas and we weren't threatening with the passes, we're, as you said, playing it safe, I think is the best way. And that accounts for why those numbers improved. But then you look at, okay, progression with the passing, how well were we getting the ball forward? It's brutal. Moving it person to person. And uh, if you were looking at the slides, it's a lot of red uh, in terms of the year over year change. It, it's so brutal. Uh, you look at these numbers and I mean, this really tells the story. I mean, it's funny. Our progressive distance was the exact same in passing year over year, you know, we we're sixth. So, you know, we gained a lot of distance, but unfortunately it was in the wrong areas of the pitch. I mean, so look, switches down from eight to 13th. Progressive passes down from eight to 13. Final third passes, passes into the final third, ninth to 13th, 16th in passes into the penalty area from 10th. That is massive. And then probably the most damning one, considering all things, crosses into the penalty area. We went from seventh to 13th. I mean, that is a ton of red on the slide and it's not good. And I think when you really start to peel back the layers from a personnel standpoint, I mean, some of it's limitations here. I mean, our whole right side didn't necessarily have guys certainly that could cross the ball into dangerous ways. But when you start to peel back, you're like, well, wait a second. Didn't we get James Rodriguez into this team and his numbers look good. So what happened James? Yeah, it's a, it's just crazy. I mean, we were definitely, we saw in the games that Hamas was actually fit to play. It totally changed our ability to attack, attack the box. And without him, we looked pretty clueless as far as getting the ball forward. Maybe Luca Dean might be able to muster up some crosses. And you see, if you look at uh, the sidebar here, crosses into the penalty area per 90, Luca Dean still coming in at less than one at 0.87. And then the next couple guys, Alex Wobie and Bernard at 0.53 and 0.39 respectively, didn't really play that much. And then you got Hamas coming in. And when you look at, I think that uh, is going to be a recurring theme here as well. Ryan is like some of the guys who put up, albeit in a smaller sample size, more creative numbers had a hard time getting on the pitch to begin with. Yeah. And first of all, we've seen a Wobi crossing at the right side. He doesn't look very comfortable out there no. in terms of being aggressive and attacking the box. Like he does in the left side. In fact, when you look at his performance with Arsenal, he's actually a decent 
statistically a decent crosser from the left side. And, and, but his numbers are really low from the right. And the few times he played there, it's just, he's just not comfortable on that side. Um, he becomes good in a possession standpoint, but he's not taking guys on as much because he's on his, his wrong foot cutting inside and he likes to be in there. But yeah, I think the lack of a right-sided option across the ball, I think that's a big issue, but I mean, passing the penalty area is the biggest one for me that you look at. And you look at a guy like Bernard, who a lot of people don't realize he's been really creative for us in the past. He didn't play. I mean, Bernard actually has a higher number of passes into the penalty area, P90, than James does. And James has over two. And after that, it's a drop. But Owobi is another guy. I mean, this is one of the things, in progressive passes as well, too. He does that very well. And Dean's another one there. And Dean dropped, I think, a little bit from last year, too. I mean, I think part of the problem is we got some guys that have in the past been somewhat progressive when we got them, you know? Um, James is the only one that seemed like he continued his performance because the guy's just phenomenal, but guys like Decore, Gilfie, Sigurdsson dropped off the earth. Dean is normally very high in this number and dropped Coleman really dropped. A lot of these people are dropping. Now, part of that is stylistically the way we played, but we have got to get more from these guys. Um, but James still put up the numbers, but I mean, progressive passing too. I mean, Jeez, I mean, I guess some of this is style of play, right? I mean, Alon and DeCorey were playing much deeper than I think they typically were. Awobi's outright, which isn't a great place for him. But, you know, part of the fizz, you kind of look at it, a guy like, even like a guy like Fabian Delph when he was available. He's not playing. And he's always been a good progressive passer. Um, he's always good at passing under pressure. I mean, I just part of this is personnel selection, I think, a little bit. Am I wrong? No, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. And when you look at, look, you can talk about where they're, if they're getting into the penalty area, passing or crossing, but just in general, a progressive pass and Hamas leading the team by so much and such a, and then the guys in the middle, you know, didn't play that much. And then no one else had more than three or so passes per 90 progressive passes per 90. And so who it, don't we just, see on this slide, by the way, because if you look at it be like, okay, wow, well, Bernard and a I mean, look, they're not, they're not world-class players or anything, but this is an area in which they excel in. They're fairly creative. They can get the ball forward, but they mostly sat on the bench for Gilfie Sigurdsson, but I don't see Gilfie in these numbers. No, and we will not see him uh, very often in terms of just volume of involvement or volume of productivity other than the set piece thing. Yeah. And it's a big problem too. And we'll get into that in more detail. So look, okay, fine. Progressive passing was dreadful. Just our ability to progress the ball up the field and get it into dangerous areas via pass was very bad. All right, fine. All right. That's not the only way to get it up there. You know, another way to do it is carry it forward. So, so how do we look in that regard? And I don't think it looks a whole lot better. No, it's, it's very similar in that we were extremely over-reliant on a couple of individuals, and then there's a dramatic drop-off. So you look at, look, dribbling attempts. We went from 15th to 12th, so a slight improvement there, even though the overall numbers went down. Dribble rate, we went from 9th to 13th, so dribbling even less. Progressive distance actually stayed the same. We were 11th, so still bottom of the half of the table in that sense. Progressive carries, 11th to 14th. Final third uh, from 13th to 15th and then crosses into the penalty or carries into the penalty area, excuse me, 15th to 17th. So we're in the bottom half to begin with in almost all of these metrics and we got worse in almost all of them as well. Yeah, this one's really disturbing to me because, I mean, these numbers were already there and have been there for a long time. And Marcel Brands has obviously been very aware of them. And so some of the guys that have some ability to do this Look, if there's one guy on the team, well, part of it's Richarlison to not playing right 
on the left side, because I think that helps us a lot. Um, but the bottom line is if he's not going to play out there, you got to have someone that can run at someone and push the defense back a little bit. And look that we literally have two guys basically on the team that can dribble by anyone at all. Yeah. And that's uh Richarlison and Alex Awobi who together combined for over a quarter, 31% of Everton's total dribbles on the season. And again, we're talking about a guy who Alex Awobi was in and out of the squad all season. Richarlison was a mainstay. And as a result, he was the, only player with more than 19 carries into the penalty area. That is just an unbelievable number, by the way. The worst part, we were worse last year. I don't think anyone had more than 16 last year. But, but I mean, look, so if we're going to look at a right wing, this is the type of thing that this would tell us. We need someone that can break someone down in the pass and in the dribble. We've got to get the ball forward and into the box, whether it's a cross from the right back playing in the wide areas, depending on the tactics we choose, or a right wing that can run at someone and get in, because I don't want to see Alex Awobi on the right side anymore. He's just not as effective there. And look, he's not a world-class player, but he can be useful doing this on the left side. Put it this way. In Alex Awobi's last year with Arsenal, he had 62 carries into the penalty area by himself. He had more carries into the penalty area in his three best matches than anyone not named Richarlison had in this entire season. Think about that. He had 20 in three matches. That was in three matches for heaven's sake. So he's clearly capable of doing it. And the thing is, Richarlison is a good dribbler too. He's good at carrying the ball with distance. But if you're going to play him at center forward running in behind Dom, I don't think that's the best the best use of the players in the squad. I want to see Dominic Calvert-Lewin staying up high, pushing and occupying those center halves to free up someone like Richarlison who can dribble and take someone on. And the other thing is too, with a condensed schedule like this, you cannot expect two guys or one guy in this case to carry the load like that, that's just not reasonable. We need more options where guys can beat people with the dribble. And, and, and I mean, look, it, that's the thing. You can have all the possession in the world, but in the final third, when it matters, you either got to have a guy that can make an incisive pass like a Hamas or someone that could beat someone off the dribble, get to the line and send it in or beat him going to the middle and bury one in the corner or put one in or play someone through. And to me, one guy that will never do that is Gilfie Sigurdsson. And I really think that, especially when we look at open play creation, it's really hard to justify his involvement. And again, this is not me. People have heard me on Twitter brag about how great Alex Iwobi is. I think you're missing the point here. I don't think Alex Iwobi is a world-class player. I just think for a team that really lacks some of the things he actually does well, I think it's hard to justify not including him in the side, and I would not be surprised, much to some people's dismay of that already mind, made their mind up on him, that you won't see him get a little bit more involvement in the next team. But we, if we any attacking player we get going forward, we have to address these areas. Although it's not the only way to address it, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so look, what matters is overall is you know how this leads to creating goals and whatnot. But first, before we get into that. One thing to consider is, did we at least take care of the ball pretty well? Because that's been a problem we've had in this side for a while. So it's one thing that, okay, we possessed the ball a little bit better, but man, we weren't progressive at all. Was part of the problem we gave the ball away a lot? At least I don't think that was the case. Yeah, this is one area that we actually improved, and it, and it may be partially tied to, as we mentioned earlier, just playing a little bit more safe. Maybe. And we, you know, not as many passes under pressure, that sort of thing. But you look at miscontrols, for example. We were... Near the bottom of the league in 17th last year, we moved up to 10th. So a, a significant improvement there. Uh, dispossessions stayed the same in terms of rank, improved slightly in the overall numbers, about 0.6 per match, per 90 better. Um, and then receiving, 
percentage went from 82 to 84. So really slight improvement. And we moved up the table a tiny bit there. But the problem with that is when you look at that number, that's like, oh, we got a little bit better. Well, we really didn't. And the reason why is you look at how many of those receivings are from progressive passes or passes that really advance up the pitch. And that was a big drop. And I think one of the things we talked about in the summer was how excited we were at guys like Alon, DeCorey, and James as a unit because we felt like James in particular can hold the ball in advanced positions and unbelievable receiving the ball. His first touch is incredible. He's strong on the ball. Alon, one of the best at receiving passes, controlling them, and moving the ball in the entire planet, in all honesty. His numbers are outrageous. And DeCorey, maybe not as clean as possible, but he would normally do it, you know, at least advancing the ball and being aggressive. And we saw him taking more care of the ball than he ever has. So the impact of those guys, what it should have been was really not what it was. Part of that was style of play, but part of it was also the way they were utilized. And look, what this says is to say, look, I'm glad that we controlled the ball, but look, the bottom line is you want to create goal scoring chances and shots and opportunities for your team. So it's hard to look at this and not say, you know what? I think maybe we were a little too risk averse, or at least we didn't set up the team properly to put enough pressure on opponents. And I think that's right, especially when you start to look at chance creation, which I think is the most important aspect of all this, because it all kind of flows into here. Now, don't get me wrong. You can have few touches in advanced areas and just be incredibly efficient and still score. I don't think that's necessarily something that's very easily sustainable. But this is where it all culminates, and these numbers are not good. Yeah, you're going to see some uh, big percentage drops in this slide um, and some significant drops in rank for Everton. Look, I mean, from live shot-created actions from live play, went from 13th to 14th. That actually was comparatively pretty decent. But Uh, we also got James Rodriguez, who's a master at this too. So, you know, that's one where you look at and be like, oh, well, that's not that bad. Well, it really is if you think about what the heck were the other guys doing. You know what I mean? Right. And even our shot created actions from dead passes, AKA dead balls are not better than they were last season. And that was what we were still extremely overly reliant on. We went from second in the league uh, per 90 to seventh in the league. So that's like a huge drop there. And then shot created actions off the dribble 12th to 17th. It's just diabolical. Like this is a bottom half team in a lot of these offensive metrics relegation in some of them. Yeah. And then the last one is defensive actions. I mean, it, that's fine. You know, one way to solve that is push people up the peel field, get people to make mistakes and score off of those, which we did not do at all. And I think the biggest concern for me is when you're looking at it is, you know, Hamas still declined a little bit from what he was doing before and that's fine, but oh my goodness, the decline in some of the other guys is, is really stunning to be perfectly honest, especially from open play. And, and I, we're going to get into some of the details in the individual performances in a bit here. But so let's look at goal-created actions kind of on the next slide real quick too. Um, this one's really interesting because we just went over the fact that, you know, dead balls dropped from a shot standpoint, but we magically scored a bunch of them. So, I, you know, it is what it is. But, but look, I mean, this is what goals-created action is just simply not as reliable, frankly, because there aren't as many of them, really. You know, so this speaks more to, to the luck, but I mean, Nothing created from defense, same as we did from live action, really, which goes to show you, considering how few shot-created actions we had, we were pretty efficient. But I don't think that's something that's sustainable and it all needs addressed for sure. I mean, that set piece one, I mean, I, I don't think, put it this way, 
I'd be pretty surprised if next year we only have the 16th number of corners and lead the league in corners scored. That's not good um, because in many ways, having a couple, two big grocks back there and someone like Ben Godfrey playing fullback, it limits our ability to tack. So yes, I'm glad we made the difference up for a couple goals here or there on set pieces, but that's not the majority of the game. And I mean, you've got to do better from open play. And that really should be the focus. We have to be better from open play. And you really, yeah, you can't be over-reliant on set pieces because they can dry up in an instant. Yeah. I know we have a good squad with a lot of height and guys who are good in the air, but yeah, that it just speaks of like a statistical anomaly that we were able to do this well, despite the fact that a lot of our volume numbers went down. Maybe you could say, okay, well, we were really clinical in the air, but look, that only go- gets you so far. And eventually, like if our set piece goals had dried up, we would have been in a far, far worse position. So fortunately we were able to take advantage for this year, but it's not something we can rely on in the short uh, medium to long-term at all. No. And I, I think this is where the individual performances really stand out. And it's something where I don't know if Carlo is kind of ignoring his analysts, um, but there are some gaps here in terms of performance and things that just don't seem to add up for us. And I think that's why we were so confused at the end of the year. Um, And so first things first, kind of open play expected goals, P90. We talked about the performances of the two strikers, but the fact that the only guys anywhere near them were Gilfie and James. And again, this is open play stuff. So, I mean, Gilfie did not, um, you know, didn't finish particularly well outside of his penalties. James was unbelievable on fire, but nobody else is over three. I mean, that's not good, especially when some of the guys come in like DeCorey's scored some goals in the past, but he's just right. not being utilized in a way. I mean, I, I, I really think if you think about this team and you think, say we even decided to be a counterattacking team. I mean, imagine having a right back that could serve a ball that was athletic, you know, a right wing that could break someone down in the dribble just to hold it up up front. You could see DeCorey <sighs> flying into the box and finishing. I mean, I just think that a new right side could really transform this team, but there, that gap can't exist anymore. And it's not that those guys aren't capable either. You know, but you can't expect right. Hamez to score, you know, six goals off of a 3.4 expected. Go- I mean, it's just not going to happen. I don't care how brilliant he is. Um, and then and I'll we... tell you what, the shot created actions, though, Hamez, to me, from open play P90 is the one. This is the one number that I look at and I'm just thinking, how can you how can you sit there and complain about, well, we can't create anything. We can't score. We can't break teams down. And, and two of these guys never see the field. Yeah, it, it's a huge disparity. And just quickly on, on the open play XG, and you, you mentioned the, the incomings of like DeCorey and Allen, guys who can get forward if they're tasked with that role, but so often they were just being the shields for our defense or having to go wide to receive the ball because our shape was all off. And uh, it, it just created a really, I think, dysfunctional situation for those guys and prevented them from being able to involve, be involved in the buildup or in the attack. But the SEA per 90 from open play, as you said, Look, the top four, Bernard, James, Awobi, and Richarlison, all above two. Bernard, small sample size again, but far and away the leader. No one else in the squad created more than two shot created actions per 90 from open play. The thing is, Bernard's been doing this since he's been at Everton. Like, people don't realize this. I feel like he was first last year. I mean, that's better than James, and that number is not off for Bernard. I feel like he was even higher the last two years. I agree, yeah. Uh, look, people make up crazy narratives. He gets knocked off the ball. That's not true. None of the numbers would indicate or support that whatsoever. He's quick. He's clever. Look, I'm not saying he's world-class, but you can't tell me, especially when you had Gilfie Sigurdsson playing. I mean, Gilfie is like 10th in the team. His numbers are just deplorable in this regard. And you can't rely on someone from open play like that. 
it just, I mean, think about it. He's like at one seven or something from open play. Andre Gomes, I think is better than him in terms of shot created actions from open play. That is not the guy to play if you need to score goals and we needed to score goals and be better in the final third and break people down. He's not the guy that's going to do it. And Awobi, I mean, I just, I don't get it. You know, that's the one thing at Arsenal. I mean, he was elite, like elite player. But then you've taken a player like in, in XA, you know, in assist P90. I hate that stat. You know, I do. But in terms of shot created actions, in terms of progressive passes and look at him. He's first on the team when he played in successful attacking actions. He's at least a guy that makes things happen. Bernard's right behind him. How can these guys not play at the expense of someone like Gilfie or even Andre? It doesn't make any sense for me. And look, at the end of the season, what we were playing, we we're playing a lot of 4 4 2, right? And we would play Gilfie often defending on the left side and then forcing Why? him to get into the middle and play that 10. Half the time, he would only get to the left half space. Well, fine. You know who else is really creative and good in the half space, left half space? Bernard. And so is Awobi. Yeah. So I just, I just think like you're looking for a change. And the narrative is, well, the bench isn't any good. You can't expect them to be better. Well, it's looking like in short spurts, at least for at a minimum, and these guys have a track record of it. Maybe those guys would have been better options. Why not take a chance there? You're not playing very well. You're not scoring goals. Why would you, why would you not? I mean, I I can't, I mean, the only one we could come up with set pieces, but I don't think that's real either. No, it's just crazy because it's now, and it's not just like a thing with Carlo either. We've talked about it, but it's every manager since he's come and his numbers have been a little bit better in the past. This was probably his worst season in a blue shirt but he just offers so little from open play. And you can tell from the naked eye that that's the case. I mean, everyone, yeah. you know, makes a great, uh, the pointing captain pointy or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> but well, you know, that that's clearly supported by these numbers that he doesn't contribute enough for the job he's tasked with, which is to create chances in that attacking midfield role. And you've got the two guys riding pine who uh, put up good numbers when they're given the opportunity, but just have, are just denied that opportunity for some perplexing reason because yeah. Carlo trusts him positionally because he's maybe a little more de- defensively disciplined in his positioning. Like num- no results support that either. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to understand. So one, one, one thing we thought of the only thing I've heard of initially that I thought might make sense is that Carlo Ancelotti wants a right footed set piece option out there. Now, first of all, we don't have that many set pieces to begin with. I mean, we're 16th in corners of the league. So, you know, immediately you hear that you're like, well, that's interesting. And then you start thinking about it. You're like, well, okay, that makes sense. Like say we really favored in swingers. Okay. That makes sense. So let's look at our corners, for example. Well, uh, I think we had 80 in swingers, 64 out swingers and four straight balls. Does that sound like a preference for in swingers to you? No, it does not. Okay. So that's number one. So no, that doesn't make sense. Okay. So this right footed thing is absolutely garbage. All right. So, what about his Gilfie's ability to create from set pieces compared to Dean and Hamas, the other guys that would take him. So what we did was, I mean, very simple, you know, we looked at uh, shot created actions first from dead ball and compared it to Hamas and then goal created actions as well, just to see over the last four years, who's been better, you know, I mean, how many, you know, how many shot created actions per set piece attempts. And, and you know what I mean? And how many goal created actions we see from either of these guys. And guess what? I mean, Hamas is better than Gilfie. I mean, he Surprise. just is. No, I mean, it just is. I mean, it's simple. I, I don't, you know, so I don't, you know, there's no logic behind that. And, you know, part of the challenge is too, I wanted to include Dean in that analysis, but, you know, they include, unfortunately, in, in uh, dead ball passes, they include 
throw-ins. So it's like, okay, these guys don't take throw-ins. But if you use kind of corner kicks as your uh, as your denominator and do the same type of math, I mean, it's really close. Like SCA per corner for Gilfie was like 2.68 compared to Dean at 2.66. Is that enough of a difference to have Gilfie out there for set pieces? With the all goal- of his shortcomings from open play? You get, no, you know, the no. The benefit doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. And that's what drives me crazy. And actually, Dean's a little bit better from a goals created action standpoint. Hamas is better than both of them. Not a surprise there. So it doesn't add up. So when people tell you, well, he wants that set piece guy out there, or maybe there's leadership issues. Maybe there are things going on, but clearly it doesn't. None of that matters now. So I I think one thing to be somewhat optimistic about is whether you think he should be starting or not. Like Bernard's probably gone. He's got a year left unless we hire Paulo Fonseca, I think he's probably out the door, you know, and that's okay. You can move him with the year left. He had off, but that's the other thing. He had an offer in the summer from Roma, a concrete offer. Carlo insisted that he stayed. I, anyway, the point is, I, I think we can feel a little bit confident that if Alex Wobie is used in the right areas of the pitch in the right type of offense, he can contribute. Doesn't mean he's going to be world-class, but I think he can help us next year. So, um, and maybe help restore some of his value. Uh, So anyway, we got off a little off track, but I thought the set piece analysis that we did was pretty interesting. Um, I think to wrap it up too, you look at some of the other things, you know, in terms of the off the ball movement, we talked about our lack of progressive runs out there. You know, Wobi offers that and, and, you know, it didn't necessarily end up with the greatest output on the right side, but it's still there and it put pressures on defense. And, and if Richarlison's not going to play left wing, well, who the heck's going to do it for us? Not Gilfie Sigurdsson shoehorned out to the left side, trying to make runs. And, no, definitely. you know, it's just weird. You know, we've had so, so little to offer on the right side. And so it's created this kind of imbalance, but then you've got an overabundance of players who can play on the left. And we only really use a couple of them throughout the course of the season. So it's, Really yeah. bizarre, but and you know, then you see the expected assist to P90. You know, one thing that's worth mentioning is not to totally pick on Gilfie, but Gilfie's at 4.8. But what you figure out is that's not from open play, I don't think. Right. Um, and and so that's the difference because it, it, they don't isolate expected assist by open play. So the slide says open play because it's relevant, but you know, that's the best we can do. And the reality is I think Gilfie had what I think he had five assists this year or six. Something like that, yeah. All but one came off of set pieces right a couple were direct from corners one was a short corner and the other one was a flunked corner that came back to him and again i'm not saying he's bad at set pieces but he demonstrably statistically speaking is not any more productive in creating shots or goals from set pieces than dean or james and certainly not good enough to justify his continued inclusion on here um what i find very interesting too is and this is a little bit of a different wrinkle looking out here is, and so James is, is number one on the team and expected assist per 90. No shocker. Dean is also way up there and Gilfie is too. Again, they take set pieces where Charleston's 3.2. I don't think he even got to that. Decore is 2.2. Those guys can all do better in different roles, but my favorite stat in here, it's, it's, it's a hard one to rely upon. It's the players on pitch, you know, the team's success rate in terms of goals per 90 when individuals are on the pitch, who is first, Hamez? Yeri Mina. King Yerold. Explain that one. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's very interesting. He's at 1.53. Again, Hamez is right behind him. No surprise there. We, you know, we're night and day when he's on the pitch. Behind him, of course, Awobi at 1.3 and Gomes right behind him. So um, Yeri Mina being first on the pitch, why do you suppose that is? It's a direct function of uh, the more Colombians you have on the pitch at any given time, the more uh, goals you score. That's no, that's... I, I do think like Yeri Mina is, and we've speculated about this on a couple of prior episodes, but 
it, it does seem like he's one of our few center backs who's really truly comfortable playing a higher line and also comfortable with the ball at his feet. We've seen, we've seen Mason Holgate, a little bit of a disaster season, Michael Keane, not comfortable pushing up. And so when we're talking about the ability to progress the ball and how poor we are at progressing it and have, or were all season, you guy like Yerry Mina who takes it upon himself to actually look forward and, and attempt to, to push guys up and push the line forward, thereby pushing the midfield up. It makes sense that that would afford us a little bit more, um, maybe more numbers in the final third when he's on the pitch in terms of just men in that area. And then, you know, the shape kind of uh, consolidates around him. Now the injury problems for him in and out of the squad, but he did play a good amount. And I think he's our most reliable defender. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue for any, uh, anyone else to be included as the number one center back, maybe Ben Godfrey, but I think he still has a, a little bit of developing to do in terms of the discipline. Yeah, he's got the talent. We've seen him do it in the past for other yeah. places. I mean, Michael Keane is a good progressive passer. I mean, we saw him ding a couple balls this year over the top. Oh, that um, one to DCL. That was unbelievable. Right? And, and we've seen him cut through lines at times, too. And, you know, maybe he is a confidence player because he seemed like his performance fell off a little bit in the back. But he's still not very comfortable keeping the ball in advanced areas. I, I think it'd be hard to watch him yeah. play and think otherwise. Um so anyway, without further ado, I mean, I, look, we went through a lot of numbers here. We talked a lot about the attack, but I think the summary, it's the numbers are pretty obvious. And, and I think the summary is pretty spot on. I mean, look, we talked about the problems we have in creating chances from open play. Clearly, there's a fall off behind James, whether it's personnel, whether it's not, you know what I mean? That's an issue. It's got to be fixed. Um, I mean, my God, our numbers progression via pass and dribble is deplorable. I mean, that, that I mean, how can you argue that one, right? Right. And then the touches in dangerous areas. So we don't create from open play. We don't even really get the ball in dangerous areas from open play. And then when we can't move the ball forward, either by passing it or dribbling it, we just don't have enough volume to actually justify any sort of goal scoring output. And so you have kind of a functionally deficient offense in a lot of ways where we can't really cross that much. We don't really penetrate off the dribble and we don't beat guys. So uh, it's, it's a, serious problem for Marcel brands to try to solve in the summer. And it's been one that we had. I mean, this is a very similar right. review, the progression issue. Possession was an issue last year. It wasn't as much of an issue this year, which, I mean, there is some good at that. I mean, if you're keeping the ball more and you're passing more accurately, you know, you're definitely not putting as much pressure on your defense. So there is something to that. It's True. not like it's totally valueless, but the lack of progression is really disturbing and i think what's most disturbing is the fact that so many of our players you know the new acquisitions dropped in that regard significantly right so that speaks to either utilization uh his teammates just around him but i think a lot of it's utilization but i think there's some things that we can do differently to get them in better positions to succeed and i, I you know we're going to talk about those things at the end um so look, that wraps up the offensive attacking summary. So we're going to take a quick little break, I think, before we get into the defense. Um, any last words on the attack before we transition? I hope it gets better. That's about the most positive thing I can say. It's going to be really interesting. But most importantly, look, we just need some dynamic guys who are unafraid to attack and uh, attack with abandon because reckless abandon because it seemed like a lot of, a lot of the players either can't do it or just don't have the confidence to do it. <clears throat> Uh, and, and I don't think it's like that far away from improving. I think a couple of key pieces to give us some more balance and you'll see improvements from the guys we already have, as well as the new guys bringing what they can to the squad. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I mean, my favorite part of this discussion is hopefully going to be the end where we talk about solutions because yes. it, it looks bad, but I think it can be fixed for sure. Uh, even greatly fixed in this window. Uh, again, depends on the manager as well too. But anyway, uh, yep, we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll get into the defense and then we'll talk about solutions, how to fix all of our Everton problems. We're here for you to provide the solutions and uh, hopefully some of the brass are listening. So, all right, without further ado. Welcome back, everyone, to the American Toffee Podcast. Uh, if you stayed with us for our first hour, you got to see a very extensive assessment of the year, uh, kind of how we compared against our objectives in terms of our year-end performance, and a very heavy decomposition, I think, into our attack. Uh, we're going to move into the goals against and the defense this year, uh, take a look back on it, kind of where we were at, look at some individual actions as well, as well as the style of play. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from this one, but a lot of it really does start, at least for me, with style of play. But let's go on some of kind of the more macro level data at this point, James, if you want to start walking us through this sucker. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at uh, two years ago, Carlo Ancelotti's first year in charge. We had a XGA of 49.3, which was ninth in the league, but conceded 56. And then this season... <clears throat> XGA of 51.2, so slight increase. We conceded more chances, uh, but conceded far fewer, conceded only 48. So we outperformed our XGA, uh, good for 10th in the league. Um, and so you look at this and uh, what do you think, Ryan? Well, I, I think it's a good thing. Um, I know you look at that XGA and look at that and say 11th and well, haven't we gotten worse in that regard? Um, I don't like the fact that we gave up 33 goals uh, against nope. from open play. Uh, it's not very Marco Silva-ish, right? It was kind of like the opposite. Uh, yeah. We only gave up seven from set pieces. I think that is encouraging. But again, with our personnel, you would think that. But I, I do think there's a silver lining in here. And one of the critiques that I've heard about XG, which I think is a fair one, is that um, it's typically better to have fewer really good chances than a high volume of low per percentage chances. They just tend to add up and and not overstate xg i don't know if that's a fair thing because xg is only a number it's only a reference point really even if it is historically driven um but i think in that regard uh we were very good at preventing big chances i would think and no i'm not using the term big chances created i think that term is silly uh and and opta's formula by the way for creating that is nowhere near as advanced as at least the xg numbers we're use we're using from stats bomb uh using fb ref but I think, I think what's encouraging is that XGA uh, per shot. I think that yeah. is a very, very good story. Yeah, it just shows, obviously, like, we're not giving teams great chances. They might – and we've had some worldies scored against us this season. I mean, Dwight McNeil's goal comes to mind, but there were oh, yeah. a handful of others. And, look, those are going to happen sometimes. But if those are the, the – um, if those are a higher proportion of the goals you're conceding and you're not giving up the tap-ins, you're not giving up the goals, really, really high percentage looks, then that bodes well for at least, uh, you know, over time, you're going to have a stronger defense and going to concede fewer goals over time. And um, it was an improvement in that regard. And it makes sense as we get into the style of play here, 
why that was because we certainly uh, set up to uh, prevent teams from scoring on us first and foremost. Yeah, we did. And, and part of it's also goalkeeping. I mean, there's no argument whatsoever. We improved in that regard this year and, and look, it wasn't hard. It was really bad. <sighs> well, that's a good point. So let's, let's be frank about it. Jordan Pickford last year, if there was not a guy named Keppa was probably the worst keeper in the league in terms of shot saving. And I know some people might be shocked about that England number one, but the numbers just bear it out, man. I mean, his save percentage was terrible. Uh, and his, I mean, look, we're 19th in the league in save percentage last year and 18th in post shot expected goal, which takes into account the quality of the shot differential against the goals conceded. So look, I mean, not all of this is sunny. I mean, we still gave up more shots from distance from outside the box that we gave up 12 goals than almost any team in all of five leagues, but certainly in the premier league. Um, but look, Pickford improved his play and looked very confident. I mean, he talked a lot about being meeting with the sports psychologist. He looked calm. I mean, I hate to yeah. say it. Maybe he was having a kid. I mean, that certainly has an impact on people. Believe me, I know. Uh, <laughs> but I also think the acquisition of Robin Olson was, uh, was an almost underrated acquisition this year. I feel like the fans maybe didn't appreciate quite as well. As, don't appreciate how good he really was for us. Yeah, look, he improved. He beat his expected goals conceded five out of his seven Premier League matches. And I think people did really appreciate having an actual somewhat reliable backup, if for no other reason than to provide that level of competition to Jordan Pickford and help him to raise his game, because it wasn't a nailed on thing that he would necessarily start. And you saw Carlo kind of leverage Olsen in certain situations to maybe just plant that seed in Pickford's mind. Like, look, this isn't good enough. If I want to play in the Euros this summer, if I want... To, to move on further in my career. I'm going to have to step my game up. And the save percentage, like numbers approved across the board, and especially in the second half of the season, I think Jordan Pickford uh, was near the top of the league in terms of the goal differential based on uh, post-shot XG. Yeah, I feel like that's his best save percentage in an Everton jersey so far, you know, and one of his best of his career. 71, it's not going to lead the league or anything, but it's still pretty respectable. Um, and I think to say another thing about, last year when we did our review you know we were trying to get to that 42.2 goals conceded right i mean that was kind of kind of the goal i mean we could figure we could make up half the difference by just getting a decent performance here and we were spot on i mean there it is right six goal differential at least based on that measure in terms of just saving the ball you know yeah uh i think that matters and and i think robin olsen too i think surprised some people with his distribution i mean really the only bad game you could argue he had was a manchester united match and I think that's pretty harsh too. Cause he flat out slipped on the last goal. You know right. I mean? That, that was, that was disappointing. You know, I, I don't think he was a complete disaster in that one too. And, and look, it's mostly a team effort, but it was good to see the goalkeeping improve. And look, Jordan Pickford is signed on a long-term deal. You know uh, we need him to come around and I, I'm sure that we'll opt for another experienced goalie, but it was really good to see Pickford bounce back. I mean, that that's, that's definitely cause for significant optimism going forward next year. Yeah, and it's certainly one uh, area that we don't necessarily have to prioritize, whereas if he had emulated his form from 2019-2020, uh, we would definitely be in the market for a new keeper, you'd have to think. Yeah, no question about it. Um, so anyway, moving past goalkeeping, I, I think this slide probably says as much. Um, I, I, none of these numbers will be surprising to anyone. I mean, we watched him play all year. The style of play was very different. And I don't necessarily blame Carlo for doing so. And, and you look at some of the numbers, and I think one of the reasons why we conceded fewer goals was the way he played. I think also the limitation of our personnel. You know, the bottom line is we didn't really have and still don't have 
a right back that's capable of getting up and down the field, especially in wide areas. Now, Seamus Coleman had a decent year, a decent year, um, but he's not getting up and down the pitch like he was before. And look, we, you know, Dean had to sit out for, you know, a match or two. And, and when you put someone like Ben Godfrey at the fullback position, we've seen how excellent he is on the defensive end, but it doesn't make sense to try and maraud him forward. It's, you know, occasionally he'll make a great run because he's a great athlete, but he's not, you know, he's no end product whatsoever. It's not his, it's not his main role. So I got no problems with Carlo Ancelotti sitting back more and defending and being tough to break down. Wish we'd have seen it in the last match, but we didn't. But anyway, the numbers here overall in terms of defensive style are, are pretty significantly negative, I guess is one way to look at it. It's hard to say negative though, because this is just a style comparison. You know what I mean? More so defensive, I you, you, you would say. Yeah, I just don't want people to look at this and necessarily think this is awful. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're defending more, it's not good. Um, <laughs> right. And Carlo clearly didn't care that much about possession, at least for this team. And I get some of that. But anyway, a quick introduction to the two major metrics here that we have here. I mean, people understand fouls and pressures. You know, we, we didn't foul as much, actually, which I think is kind of a negative. I'd like to see us play more in the front foot. Um, you saw our pressures, uh, you know, weren't – we didn't have as many, uh, pretty significant. And, and certainly our pressures in the attacking third plummeted. I mean, we were like 16th in the league. So I get that. Um, but the two major metrics that measure style, why Scout produces one called PPDA. And a lot of people haven't heard of this, but it's passes per defensive action. And basically what it does is per pass, it looks at the number of tackles, interceptions, fouls, and just winning duels you've had. Um, but it's only measured within the opponent's final 60% of the pitch. So it's a measure of how actively you are pressing and attacking them in your attacking side. You know what I mean? It's, it's a measure of high pressure. And I mean, we dropped from seventh to 16th. That is not a high pressuring team. Put it that way. Um, yeah. And then the other measure too is challenge intensity. And all that measures is really kind of looks at, you know, per minute of the opponent's possession, how many duels, tackles, interceptions you had. And, and we definitely were not as combative. I mean, that's really yeah. kind of what that says. You know, we went from eighth to 15th. I mean, that is a marked difference in style. And while it helped some, I mean, it certainly didn't help on the offensive end. And look, defense, this is a fluid game. You know, football is one where the defense and offense have to work together. There are really four phases of play, and the transitions matter. And I think we struggled in those areas. So we sat back and defended well, especially when we had the lead. But transitioning into attack, I mean, these numbers aren't helping you do that. No, and it, it felt so often that that in certain moments of certain games, like when we were defending a lead, namely, but even in some of the matches against bigger teams that wanted to possess more, we were happy to just sort of defend, clear, defend, clear. And there's no transition from defense to offense. It's you defend and then you kick it and you defend some more and you defend some more. And that's where you see, like, we're not getting out of the box. We're not clearing our lines, maybe if all that effectively and getting yeah. out and actually forcing teams to make errors, which we can then transition and counterattack. So even though like we had, we were resolute defensively for the most part, we had a really hard time transitioning out of that defensive phase and into the offense, progressing it. And we got into those numbers in the previous segment. So no need to rehash them, but they are interconnected in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you look at some of the players, you know, the highest pressures P90 was a lawn, no surprise there whatsoever. But in many cases, we, we almost needed him to sit back more um, from a personnel standpoint, or at least a choice of personnel. But I think there's also a little bit of a misunderstanding too. I think, I don't think Carlo necessarily wanted to play with a sitting center mid sometimes you know he wanted to yeah. play that 442 in defense part of the issue is personnel too you know i mean he clearly someone like michael Keane doesn't feel as comfortable pushing up higher 
And if that's the case and you can't condense that midfield and defensive line, there's going to be space behind those guys. So it's hard to tell whose fault it really was. You know, at times, you know, Alon looked like he wanted to pounce and attack and pressure. And so the back line's either got to make up the difference and, and fill in that gap, or we need a sitting defensive mid behind him. Sometimes it was Tom Davies, but although he had a much better year this year, his interceptions were way up. We're going to go look at that in a second. I don't necessarily think he's the guy you want doing that unless you're playing against, you know, a poor team, which we also didn't even see that. So it was disappointing because I think some of the guys like DeCorey and Alon in particular, I think could be a lot more effective in terms of wrecking havoc from a defensive standpoint, but really weren't. In fact, part of me thinks, I don't know what your thoughts are. I think we have a lot of players that I think would rather play on the front foot. I mean, a lot of them were bought for Marco Silva's team, which was a very strict four, three, three kind of pressing uh, counter pressing and a more aggressive kind of defensive scheme. And I I think if we're looking at a manager, I think we probably should look into someone that's willing to do a little more of that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like you you see on the slide here, like you had, Alon with 29.5 pressures per 90. And then Andre Gomez next highest at 21.2. You'd want to see, I would have been, I, I'm surprised not to see Decore uh, in there. I'm not surprised to, to not see Gilfie Zagerson or some of those other guys, but <laughs> yeah, he's not right. 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 That, I mean, he's not, if you're going to play Gilfie, I think it's a little tough to do that, but some sure. of the other guys for sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you have some of the, some guys who can get up the pitch. I mean, Alex Wobie likes to, to get up and maybe get in guys faces. Sometimes he can, play on both sides of the ball. Um, but that clearly wasn't the mandate from Carlo. And so you see just really, uh, really content to just sit back and sort of let teams do what they, they want uh, in the midfield. And we'll just try to defend our 18 yard box. Yeah. And, and as we move into some kind of the individual defensive actions, you still have some people in moments, you know, some of our percentages were still okay. Um, some of the volume were not, but you know, it was a change, you know, things were just, a little bit different in many ways. And some of these numbers aren't good. Like, so for example, the first number we see is we won more tackles P90. Well, that's not usually good because ultimately you know, we're fourth in the league in that. Well, that means the other team has the ball. So that's right. not always a good thing. Again, Carlos says possession doesn't matter for this team. Well, it matters in general uh, to some extent. I mean, and, and we saw how our inability to break down teams that sat back Um but yeah, I mean, it, it tackles one P90, you know, you had a lot of 2.37 and no one else is over two. I mean, that's not good. You know what I mean? You got to pressure a little, we got to win the ball back more. Um, but look, I mean, we were hard to dribble past as a result, right? We went from 10th right. to fifth in terms of percentage against the dribble. We're at 36.9%. I mean, we are a hard team to dribble past. And especially you look at a guy like Gary Mina, that's always hard. He was at 70%. Godfrey, I think, qualified for league leaders, uh, depending on some measures, and was number one at 64.1. But Yerry Mina was number one. I'm mean, 70% is a big number. And a lot of guys were right behind it, too. I feel like Holgate's number was decent. Um, you know, a couple of the other guys were up there, too. Um, and then you start to look at some of the other ones. I mean, our pressure percentage, our ability to pressure was good. Um, but we just didn't do it very often. And so you look at a guy like Michael Keane, he's leading at 34.3%. But guess where most of those were happening? Right. In our in our final third or in the midfield. So it's right. not super effective. And then you look at look like interceptions per 90. Well, we got almost three more, more than three interceptions per 90 higher, but we dropped comparatively to the rest of the league by five or four places, three places, excuse me. My math's a little off. So like even though we were intercepting more, everyone else also intercepted even far more. So uh see a decline there and then pressures in the attacking third i mean huge drop off yeah huge drop off yeah that's the 16th 
Yeah, that's massive. And then recoveries P92 went from seven to 13. That That's it's a little bit luck. I, I don't love that metric because a lot of it is just kind of, you know, loose balls and stuff. But if, if, if you're, if that thing is truly accurate, meaning as we weren't scrappy enough, I, I, that's not really what it means, but, but it still is disturbing. But I think the pressures in the attacking third P90, that 10th to sixth drop, I mean, that says it all, you know, stylistically. And, and when you talked, you got it right about transition, you know, it makes it really hard. I mean, if you can win the ball a couple of times, at least up higher in the pitch and every now and then when we did it, you know, you can create chances that way. That's one way to improve your attack by being aggressive. And I don't think we necessarily lacked athletes on our defensive side. Um, but I also think we don't put the athletes maybe in the position to really get up the field and attack in a cohesive way. And, and look, we had a lot of injuries. I mean, for heaven's yeah. sakes, we played yeah, yeah. a Brighton team that pressures a lot with one healthy central midfielder. So, I mean, I, I don't think any other team in the league dressed as many players as we did. And I think we, we, I don't think we had a single player that played 90% of the available minutes. Michael Keane was teetering around it. I think the only other team like that was Chelsea and they did it by choice. Maybe there was right. one other team. That's it. You know, you had other teams like Villa that had like five, you know what I mean? So, so that's part of it, you know, and if you don't have a lot of continuity, it's hard to play faster. Um, there may have been some other reasons for that as well too. Um, but anyway, we kind of continue on the metrics. I mean, there's still some decent defensive metrics from some of the other measures as well, too. Um, and so when we flip kind of to the next slide, it captures aerials one, uh, opponent touches P90 in the penalty area, which is an important number, and defensive dual percentages. I mean, what team is better than us in the league in aerials? Zero, best in the league. So, I mean, we can take that... Uh that trophy home and put it not in surprising cap. though. Right. I mean, look no. at how, look at who he utilized out in wide positions. And even Luca Dean is really good right. in the air. I mean, he's like 70%. I mean, Keenan mean, again, probably tops of the league, you know, way up there. I know Holgate did well. Again, he's playing at fullback. Um, God. And it's the was, same thing on offense, right? Right. I mean, we yeah. were really good at winning balls on set pieces and <laughs> scoring from set plays. So anytime you, uh, you benefit from a little bit of height and maybe a little bit of aerial acumen. Okay. Everton's going to come in, uh, come in pretty hot, but Anything that involves open play or pressure or uh, creating things, uh, that's where we start to maybe fall apart a little bit. Yeah, and the sad part is you look at the opponent, you know, penalty area touches P90. I mean, it, you know, we were seventh in the league last year, so we we're okay at keeping people out of our penalty box. We were 13th this year. I mean, that's the nature of us defending deeper. And again, you know, we didn't give a lot of good chances, but that's no way. That's just that many more touches closer to our goal makes it more difficult to transition into attack. Um, the defensive duels, one percentage. Yes, a lot of those are happening deeper, so they're easier to win. But still, there's some pretty good numbers. I and mean, we went from seventh to fifth. So it's not like we don't have some guys that can defend if utilized correctly. Again, Mina was number one at 72.5%. This just in, Yerry Mina is our best central back. I mean, I can't believe people are going to argue. News flash. News flash. Yeah. And now Michael Keene was really good too. But again, a lot of them are deeper. A decore was like 68%. That is a lot. But again, He's sitting back more. And the bottom line is no one really had a ton of duels except for Alon at 11.43. Right. And imagine how many more he might be able to get if he was allowed to roam a little bit more free. Um, I don't know. I mean, yes, this speaks to the fact that some of our guys are efficient in their defending. But again, you know, a lot of this is a trickle down effect of the way we chose to play, which I don't totally blame Carlo for. But still, still, I think there's some things we, we could have done better. Right. It doesn't have to be we needed to find that middle ground a little bit more where yeah. we were like defend 75, 80% and maybe attack 20%. He could change that 
but it, the personnel choices, it was clear that that was the way he wanted to play. Defend first, maybe get a goal here or there, especially in the later stages of the season, and hope to squeak by by uh, fine margins. And look, and, and we talked about how ineffective we were when we did actually have the ball and did get touches in the final third. So right. it's more than just that. You know, it's more right. than just style of play. But I still maintain there aren't that many guys on this team, I think, that's well, let's get into the summary real and let's talk about that real quick. Yeah, I, I think my issue is that I, I think, okay, look, we talked about the good news of expected goals against per shot. I mean, that was excellent. We, we did not give up that many tough opportunities and look, the goalkeeping improvement was night and day and it was great to see that's huge for us going forward. But I think the, the opportunity to press higher and be more intense and really kind of go after people. I, I think, I mean, how many players on our team do we really think are incapable of doing that? Look, Michael Keane might struggle a little bit doing that. Doesn't mean he's worthless because if we sit low, if we have the lead, oh, he's excellent. Gilfie, yeah, not, he's smart. I mean, he knows tactically where he needs to be, but he just doesn't have the athleticism. I mean, who else is in, frankly, Andre Gomes, that's the best thing he does on defense. If you sit back with him, he's got no clue. So, right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think part of it too is we have so many guys that aren't positionally astute. So I feel like right. Carlo played a lot of man, even if it was deeper. And I think some of the teams that were smart figured out a way to kind of break down that. But I mean, can you think of who else really couldn't play? Like if a new manager came in and played more of a high pressure scheme, I think he's got some people to work with. I mean, yes, we need to increase our overall athleticism, but some of these guys still are capable of playing like that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think Andre Gomez is the one that that jumps out to me. But you're right, Ryan. Like when he's running around, kind of throwing tackles in uh, a bit recklessly at times, was when he actually is most effective. When he's has to square up to a guy and defend one on one, that tends to maybe not go Ugh, so well. Bad um, news. And we got you know Fabian Delph, who probably be very suitable. Maybe doesn't have the legs. I just think I think that athleticism, Ryan, like. It, we can press fine, but when the press is beaten, the ability to recover and support the defense, we just need that uh, little bit of extra athleticism in the midfield, which we'll obviously talk about. But it seems like the back line, um, and maybe like someone like Seamus Coleman, who likes to push up, liked, tried to push up the field a lot on offense, but was ended up getting caught out in that forced other guys to have to cover for him and sort of disrupted our defensive flow. But I agree, like the new manager... You know, people saying we're, we're starting from square one. I think there are some pieces here that if you uh, deploy guys in the correct way, you could very easily and quickly adapt to a, a more uh, up-tempo style of play for sure. No, and I, I, we talked about the success in the air and the ground. I mean, we were effective in when we engaged with players and teams. You know, that's one thing to be said. But yeah, I just, I don't look at this team and I think, like bringing in a guy like Nuno Espiro Santos. Like I know he's one of the guys we've talked about. I think he is yeah. a very good manager, actually, probably a slightly underrated one. I thought he did well with Valencia, did well with Porto. Uh, his numbers at this Porto team are unbelievable, even if they didn't win the league. Um, but stylistically, I mean, look at his PPDAs. They don't press high. It's quite the opposite. They're like, you know, 17th, 19th, 18th, you know, last three years or something. You know, it's just... I just don't think Andre Gomes would probably be very happy to play in a three for him, you know, did yeah. very well with him in Valencia. People forget about that. Andre played under him, I believe. And, you know, maybe his best year, but I just, I, I would like to see someone come in that, and, and we need to get some more athleticism too. And I think we're going to get people in the summer to do that. I, I just don't think that type of manager is maybe, maybe the right choice, but, but let's take a step back now. And look, we've gone through the assessment of both the defense and the, in the offense. I mean, We've seen a lot of the issues here. Um, let's talk about solutions because look, Please. You know, it's fun to talk about all the deficiencies, but 
I, I still think we've got a couple, first of all, from a personnel standpoint, we've got a couple massive holes that I can't imagine other teams quite have gaps like that. No, it's clear. And we've talked about it. I mean, from very early on, it's been clear to basically anyone who's watched Everton, even in short stints, we got to get a new right side. We need a new right wing, someone who can cut in or at least like putting crosses with their right foot. Yeah. Uh, and we need a right back who can contribute on both ends of the pitch because that's what the modern game entails. And Seamus Coleman, look, Mason Holgate, certainly not the answer. Seamus Coleman's done all right in the job he's been asked to do, but days are numbered. And so an upgrade on in those two areas really would bring a tremendous amount of balance. If we had a Richarlison and Luca Dean ask partnership on the right-hand side, something of some, players of similar quality, well, then you're looking at a dual threat attack and teams have to defend honestly both sides instead of just forcing us to go right every time like they constantly do. And it, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. So I, I don't think the problem with this team is the the first 11 necessarily. There's a couple holes and then we just need depth really after that. And I think that that's kind of one of the going to be one of the keys. Look, I mean, we, we know what kind of shape this team was, you know, coming in the summer of 18 when brands took over. I mean, I don't think anyone we have spent like an eighth, ninth place team since then. And he inherited a team that was, I don't care if we finished eighth or not. We had 49 points and we were terrible. I mean, look, we were terrible and he had very few sellable assets. So I, I don't, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that we're going to have talented every position at this point, but I think we're getting close to not having massive gaps. And, and I think yeah. if we spend our money wisely, if we have to spend big fine, although I think there may be some cheaper alternatives too, we'll get into that, you know, and then when we talk about transfer strategy, but if you can come out of this window with two excellent players at right wing and right back, and maybe another versatile player that can fill in for right as well. Cause we have, no one there now and can maybe play some center forward that has some of those characteristics that we need. I mean, the improvement would be so dramatic considering we're so bad there right now that how could it not be uplifting for the entire team? And I, I just right. think that no other team is going to get a bounce like that. Like what other team has a positional hole like that? That's just nothing. You know, I, it's just, I don't know. I, I just, I think that that's a massive opportunity. And I, I mean, I'm excited to see who we're going to look at, you know, um, I agree. Let's, let's talk about number two. Uh, this is one where we went back and forth with all year and, and, you know, playing a holding mid, we talked about one of the big issues is we're not getting out of Decorey and Alon what we were getting when we bought them. I mean, those were two guys that were progressive, actually, you know, Decorey wants to get up the field. You could see it like the second we win the ball, man, he wants to go up and attack that kind of right half space. He wants to get up. Would it be better if we had someone sitting back that could make those passes that Alon could go up, be free to destroy people and receive the ball higher up the pitch. You know, I, I just think that look, JPG was bought for a place Ghana and, and to play that role. There's no question. You know what I mean? He's got the athleticism. He has the passing range. We just don't know what we're getting from him yet. I mean, I hope he's fully recovered. It didn't sound like when Dean fell on him and freak injury number 15, that he was going to be out for all that long, but yeah. But if he's not the guy, do you feel comfortable with Tom Davies being slotted in that role? I mean, I, I, no. for some reason, Carlo felt not comfortable playing Fabian Delph. And Fabian Delph's in his last year, and I, I, he is a progressive passer. He's very good in possession. He can pass the ball and move it. Uh, we actually played better when he was on the pitch, for sure, in terms of controlling the game. But is he the athlete you want back there running around if JPG can't go? I, I just think that it's an alternative 
But I think the other alternative is to balance between number three. I mean, if you're not going to have that, you got to have some guys at center half that will step up and be athletic and attack. Okay. So I, I don't know what your thoughts are. Two and three kind of work together for me because you, you got to support a more high pressure type team. I mean, right. four is kind of related to that too. So I don't know what your thoughts are too and, and, and how it relates to three. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. The, the next, I guess, two, three, and four are all kind of interconnected. And I do think that playing with the one holding mid who's disciplined and able to get all around the pitch. And, I, and honestly, I, I mean, I think we have guys who can suit that role. JPG seems like custom ready-made for that role like yeah, no question. it's just the fitness concerns but i do think you need that extra defensive-minded player to afford you the liberty of getting your other midfielders up to join any kind of press that you want to you want to start to develop because you got to have like f- at least five guys probably pressuring the team and then maybe you've got the other five outfield players more defensive-minded and i don't know who that player is but there's plenty of options out there i mean i think there's um <clears throat> the cost is going to be a consideration, especially when you factor in that it's not really our highest priority, but Marcel's going to have, I think a much better idea may even currently have an idea of what we'll get from JPG. And I would honestly expect that he'll go into the summer, probably thinking that you kind of have to assume that he won't really play and plan accordingly. And if you get him healthy and fit and he can contribute, then that's just an added bonus. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I just I can't help but think of some of the successful teams in this league like Manchester City. You know, sometimes if you want to hold the ball and be effective in the final third, you want to break down a team that's going to sit deep. You've got to attack in wide spaces. You have to. You can't play it over the top narrowly. They're going to I mean, they're I can't remember who was it. Maybe it was Sheffield, I think, at the end. And they had five guys in the back line and they were all pretty much the width of the 18. Yeah, I mean, you have to get around them and not just serve the ball, get around them, but you got to get around them to push the line back to look for opportunities. And that's one thing to do. But if you commit the players up high to do that, you know, I think a man city where they've got the, you know, the trios over there, wide spaces attacking fullback comes in, goes inverted. You've got a wide player and then an attacking mid kind of coming over to help support that. You've got to have defensive mids on either side or an incredible athlete in a single, single pivot to keep the ball deep when they try and kick it out and move it out. You know, whether it's a tactical foul or anything, you know what I mean? You've got to have the players to do that. And I don't know if we necessarily do, uh, I think JPG, I mean, having seen him at Mains, I thought it was fabulous. And I was so excited that we bought him, but we haven't seen him much. I, I think that could help. I, I don't know what I think about the more aggressive center back play because I, I think yeah. the big oddball here is Mason Holgate. I mean, I was incredibly disappointed with how undisciplined he was in his decision-making. He drove me crazy all year. And I thought we were past that last year. And you look at a young guy who's 24. That's very young for a center half. I think he's still 24. He might be 25. Yeah. Um, he's a great athlete. I mean, he's not a big guy. He's not necessarily strong, even though he's improved his strength and his footwork. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm not advocating a cool ball or anything like that, but I have to admit, you know, Ben Godfrey clearly has the capability of playing that way and playing with Yuri Mina, but Mina, you know, gets banged up and any center half does. Is it time? I mean, it all depends on budget, right? If you can move even a young player like Colgate, we've got young center halves. JB, you know, Jared Brantwith is out there. I mean, maybe, I don't know if it's quite now, you know, I don't know if quite the time if we can afford it, but like, I just think of the impact that a stud center half like Virgil van Dyke had on Liverpool. And like, do we need that guy? I think eventually maybe we do. Um, I just don't know if it's in the budget, if we're going to go big on right wing and right back. So I think we've got to look at maybe the holding mid and maybe we just need younger legs. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems like everyone's really ready to write off Mason Holgate, which I, I get given the struggles he's had in the latter half of the season. I will just briefly kind of defend him a little bit in that he yeah. was playing out of position for most of it. He yeah, was. he has. He does have the right back experience. Got the odd game in at center back and he was disappointing. But the season prior, I mean, he was pretty solid and people were talking about him being potentially a nailed on starter before circumstances change. And look, you can't all you have is prior performance to go off. You can't really base anything on it. But, you know, we're all hoping Richarlison turns over a new leaf next season and he'll be excellent. I think Mason Holgate, I don't think he's a lost cause. He may not be up to the standard that we need at center back, but he fits the profile of the sort of player that would allow us to pressure up higher alongside Ben Godfrey. And Michael Keane's not that guy. So you've got either Mina Godfrey or Mason Holgate. And I just don't think we're, if someone came in for him, we could probably sell him. And we'll talk about incomings and outgoings in part two of the squad assessment in a lot of detail, I'm sure. Um, but I'm not quite ready to just like uh, throw in the towel with Mason Holgate. I still think he could have something to offer. Yeah, I think some of the things he doesn't do well, though, I kind of wonder if they're really innate, you know, um, mm, the decision making, the, yeah. the attitude when he gets the ball. He needs to be the guy that pings the ball down the field when literally everyone else on the team I'd rather have doing it. Um, but it would be very interesting to see how the squad changes and how he responds to to a different manager. Yeah. Um, I, Carlo Ancelotti surely did not get the best out of him, even though you would have thought the mechanism and the way he would play would be good. Unfortunately, though, Carlo played him constantly, even when he had other options. So right. when it was clear that he wasn't playing well, and I, I question that decision, I don't think that made a lot of sense either. I mean, the difference between him and Coleman playing is massive and, and the team's success was obvious. I mean, the numbers are there. They're pretty significant. Um pressure more again we talked about that a little bit I, it can't hurt but it has to be disciplined it has to be sequenced i mean i think the new manager coming in is also going to have the benefit of more time in between matches they don't right. have Europe to worry about uh, it's not going to be as condensed a schedule so maybe they can put in some things that maybe they couldn't before um i, I do think the players are more conducive to it um yeah. and it would help to have an infusion of athleticism maybe it will help us do it even more, but I'll tell you what, man, the one that I really would have liked to see in the tail end of this year was five because I just felt like I was banging my head against the wall. I kept hearing yeah. people, well, our starting 11 is fine. It's our bench is terrible. I'm like, we're not playing well right now. We're definitely not creating a lot of chances. I mean, my heavens, could our numbers be more damning in that regard? And yet you're saying the guys at the bench aren't good enough. Well, have you thought about maybe giving them a shot? I mean, it's the funny part is when a Wobie actually went on his little run where he was playing a lot, we did really well. I mean, yeah. I think, I think we lost maybe like one match in two months. And one of the ones we lost, maybe it was two, one of the ones he didn't play. So it's kind of like, I mean, doesn't that, I mean, wouldn't you have taken a chance, especially the condensed schedule with guys being worn out and tired to infuse some of that creativity in there. I don't think it would have hurt us on the defensive end. I mean, like, like maybe you could argue Bernard's not the best defensive player, although Right, he, he wins a lot of duels for a little guy, but I mean, Awobi's numbers are great. I mean, his pressure numbers are far and away the best out of any of the midfielders or forwards. Oh uh, well, Tom Davies are decent, but his his you know his thirty two point four percent for pressures, and he had way more in the attacking third than most guys did at three point four five. So I mean, that's not it. So I, I don't. I, I just feel like Carlo really missed missed a chance here, and also we would have found out something about these guys too. I mean, even if you took a longer view. 
how are you playing some of these guys? Yeah. You know, like Gilfie or even Mason Holgate, who was kind of a mess and mix people in matches or put Tom Davies in and push Allen at a Corey and get more out of them. I just think you, you could have done some personnel things to play some of our more creative players. And we didn't, especially the way Gilfie was used. I mean, right in the left half space half the time. I mean, that is Bernard yeah. and Wobie's bread and butter. I mean, I, we know well, it's not set pieces too. I mean, is it? I think Carlo it's, not listening to our analytics team. What is going on here, man? No, I think I think you're right, Ryan. I think I think the bench conversation about the, the bench not being good enough, and even the uh, the creative players sort of narrative are, are both born out of the same thing, and that's the the deference to Carlo Ancelotti's judgment. <clears throat> And like, well, if Carlo's not playing them, they must not be good enough. Yeah, does that make think, sense? Is that true? I mean, it, was he infallible this year? I mean, we saw well, that's, a lot of- that's what I mean, though. I think people as a fan base in general were behind Carlo. And so in Carlo, we trust. And Carlo, sure. brands we trust. Sure. And I think those were the assumptions we made. Like, if this guy doesn't know what he's doing, like, what are what's even the point? And I think we started to kind of, at least on this show, sort of question that narrative and say, well, maybe he doesn't actually know exactly what would what what he can get from these guys on the bench or what we're missing it even seemed like because as you said it was just banging our heads against the wall doing the same thing over and over with the exact same or nearly identical results and i think if you had played some of the more creative guys and i also the other piece that i wanted to allude to was like the pressuring and i think not to you know he had a great backroom team i assume and and david and all the other people in terms of x's and o's but it's clear that carlo is not like a a specifics necessarily necessarily a specifics guy um and i think if you're going to run an orchestrated press with the personnel we have available they might benefit from some more specific instruction in terms of positioning and in terms of passing patterns and recognizing what the opposition is going to do and you want to have a really coordinated effort if you're going to press with any sort of uh intensity and i think those are both areas where carlo Ancelotti maybe wasn't uh perfectly suited uh to implement that sort of style of play yeah, I think what was disappointing to me was that there were times where I thought, even though we got away with it, I thought we lacked defensive shape, even though clearly that must yeah. have been what he worked on because we saw so little, you know, design passing plays and moves, you know, the tactical aspect of attacking was very absent. And again, he has short time frames between matches. So I'm not totally throwing him under the bus. I was looking forward to seeing if Carlo could kind of bring back some of the you know, high level magic that he had. I mean, this is the same guy that presided over two teams, two of the high scoring teams. I mean, Chelsea had over a hundred goals in the premier league. I mean, Real Madrid had 118 goals one season under Carlo. And again, these are talented attacking individuals, but you can't do it just with individuals. So, you know, part of it is, look, if you're not going to play guys that are inherently creative, then design ways to create and solve problems through tactics. And we didn't see that at all. Now, is that because he didn't have the time to put them in? Maybe. Maybe that's it. I, I'm not, and I was hoping we would see that, but he's gone now and it doesn't really matter. But, you know, that is a solution in many ways, you know, play your creative players. I mean, I, but, you know, or play more creatively through tactical game planning. And we saw none of that. And I think that's what's disappointing. Is this team really that inherently limited? And maybe regards it is, maybe yeah. it is, but I just, I don't think so. You know, I've seen God put it this way. He didn't get the best out of every player on this team, no question. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's crazy to suggest that someone else coming in couldn't have or devise a system or put something in, maybe due to just having the time to do it, 
we had no off season, really. You know, there was no break. Right. We kind of flowed right into the next year. So maybe that's part of it. I mean, look, you could argue, well, Carlo played Gilfie all the time. He did. He did well. Well, he didn't actually. He, he didn't. He wasn't productive at all. I mean, he scored a couple couple goals from open play, but really it was all penalties and, you know, set piece assists and stuff. So I, that, that he didn't get it out of him. I mean, he got more out of Tom Davies, probably. James was about the same, but he got less out of Alon and DeCorey, and he knows those players. And I don't think Mason Holgate played better. No chance. Richarlison had a terrible finishing year, so that mystifies me why people would be like, oh, Richarlison's going to go to Real Madrid to play for Carlo. Dude, he was a mess this year under Carlo. I mean, his I shouldn't say, his peripheral numbers are perfectly fine, but I don't think he was utilized the right way. I think he should have been playing out on the left, and we should have played single striker more. I mean, Dom benefited in a way. But, I mean, oh, well, we didn't. Well, we played much better with Arsenal. We already saw that. I don't think Carlo even realized he was a left-sided player. Bernard, we've got a lot more out of him with Silva. Gomes the same way. Um, so, I, you, you know, you start to ask questions to say even different utilization of some of these players could make the difference. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't mean to be overly critical with Carlo because I think he did well to get 59 points out of this team. And I, and I, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for coming off the international break with the game plans and the effectiveness we had against Palace and Spurs. You know, I think we're unfortunate to win those matches because I think we're all asking questions at that point where the goal is going to come from. And we created a ton of chances in those two matches. Yeah. And so uh, to me, that could have been his kind of his saving grace, you know, his, his moment. Um, but it was not to be. No, it wasn't. And uh, hopefully look, it's hard. Uh, we've, we've done a pretty comprehensive assessment of Carlo Ancelotti's time at Everton, but what the future holds will, of course, be heavily dependent on who Everton elect to bring in next. And so we, uh, we've done this assessment. We're certainly going to be looking forward to the summer window and all of the potential opportunity that awaits Everton. But I think that is a good place to wrap for our part one of our squad assessment. We hope that you enjoyed it. Um, part two, we're obviously going to be doing the individual player performances by position, do a breakdown of the attack, the midfield, the defense, our keepers, look at areas we need to improve, which we've already discussed, but as always in more detail, if you could possibly imagine more detail <laughs> and then, uh, looking at also who could Everton afford to get rid of and who might be uh, viable, uh, on the open market for transfers. So it'll be pretty comprehensive, but we don't want to jump the gun at all in terms of, uh, making predictions because i think the manager is going to do a lot in terms of well will hamas stay will a lot of these guys be interested in staying it's going to be pretty up in the air but uh yeah and look i mean we don't it's not like carlo had us locked into a particular style of play right. at this point so I, I think it's i think we'd like to see certain things but no matter what happens you know really what we're going to do is on the next episode we're going to build on what we saw look we saw issues with progression you know, we, we got to be able to move the ball up the field better and get it into dangerous areas effectively to score when teams pack it in. We've got to find people that can dribble. We need more athleticism. We think we need to play with more pressure anyway, no matter what, you know, and we've seen those things and the numbers bear those things out. We've experienced and lived with it all year, um, but I don't think all is lost. And I think there's still a lot to work with. And man, I mean, I'm excited to go into the window for the first time in a long time in terms of thinking that we could come out of this and not feel like there were just holes that we had to deal with. 
you know, right. and, and I have confidence in Marcel Brands. I think it might benefit him. It sounds like he's going to be the guy running the managerial search. I mean, look, you're going to hear rumors about Bill. He loves chatting to the press. I'm sure Farhad's going to be chatting to his buddies, Kia and Mendez and all the super agents out there. But ultimately, I think it's going to fall into the hands of Marcel Brands. And I think he's the right guy to trust with it. And look, you know, the only thing I can think of and why I'm encouraged is I looked at what he did at PSV and what he did at AZ. And we've said this a hundred times on the show. Took him four years in both those places. He inherited a much worse situation here. Well, he's entering into four, into year four. And I think we're in a good position to go forward. And I, I just, and I, I think a new manager is going to come in and I think we're going to see some outs that I think some of us have thought should have happened a long time ago. And I'm excited. So, uh, and I'm definitely excited to name the manager so we can get into some of this stuff in yes. part two. Most definitely. So stay tuned for part two. We hope that you enjoyed part one. If you did either uh, give us a like on the YouTube video, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a podcast review, any of those platforms. If you have any feedback, things you didn't like, things that didn't work, uh, we'd also love to receive that feedback as well. If you want to follow uh, USA Toffee Pod, American Toffee Podcast on socials, or Ryan and I on socials as well. We're mostly on Twitter, but on the other ones sparingly, you can find those links at linktr.ee slash USA Toffee Pod. That's linktr.ee slash USA Toffee Pod. Thank you everyone very much for listening. As always, we appreciate you. We'll be with you next time. And until then, up the toffees.